Hello, and welcome to episode 100, yay, Jazz Jazz Hands, hands. (laughs) of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, September 29th, 2022. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat, which apparently it has been because we're at 100. We're at 100. And it's National Coffee Day. Which I find very exciting. I'm under-caffeinated right now because I'm not a coffee drinker, but you're you're taking the helm on that one. Yes, I, I've had plenty of coffee today. And episode 100, how many times do you think I can say that? Well, I think it's kind of incredible. Yes, I agree. But we are incredible. That's right. So are our listeners. This is true. We got very true. a good pocket full of questions from people. Which was so fun because it was stuff that we hadn't really considered or maybe hadn't talked about in almost four years. So we're excited to dive in and answer some questions and we're going to fold it into our regular episode because that's what we like to do. Yes. So within On the Needles, On the Easel, On the Table, and On the Nightstand, we will have very interesting questions that we will be answering, plus our regular stuff. So... One of the biggest questions that we got from multiple people was our origin story and the origin story of the podcast. So we thought we'd start with those. Monica and I have been friends for 15 years, 16 years. I didn't count. So the bigs would have been three when we met, and they're 18. So 15 years ago. Oh my gosh. Give or take. So they went to a co-op nursery school here in San Francisco We both have two sons, and then they are, the sons are relatively the same age, same class. I think what was amazing at that stage in our lives was that it was really hard to find other families where the kids got along and the spouses got along. And so that was part of the magic was that everybody in our families got along with everybody in each other's families. And so we have known each other since preschool. And I think my fondest memory of Monica from preschool was we would have these long board meetings and Monica would knit her way through the board meetings. I was taking minutes. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Monica would knit her way through the... Oh, the regular meetings. The regular meetings, not the ones where we were working. Because that was later in our time at the co-op too. Yes. We did have long board meetings as well. We had these really long board meetings. And one night I brought some blueberry cookies that I found from the Christina Tosi milk cookbook. Mm. And we ate them in like the back corner of the room and didn't share. We didn't share them with anyone. No, we didn't. I think I just brought them for me and you. And we sat back there and Monica knitted and... I don't know if I was doodling or not, but so food and knitting is like the foundation of our friendship. And books too. You and, and books. You and actually, you had actually talked with Simon about books and he said, Oh, you need to talk to Monica. Oh, and that's that was true. how we started. And we had a little book club at, at school with the parents where we passed books around and Yeah, we were yeah. always trading around books. It was a lot harder then to have real thoughtful conversations about anything because we had four and two-year-olds or yeah. whatever. So that is how Monica and I have forged our 15-year <laughs> friendship with sneaked cookies in the back of a nursery yep. school. 
And then our kids went to different elementary schools. So we saw each other less because it's hard enough to to see your spouse when the kids are in, in elementary school, I think, let alone people that, that you don't see daily anyway. But we kept in touch and we'd meet for coffee and whatnot. We had kind of always joked about doing a podcast. It was definitely Just, your, like the seed is yours for sure. Yes, but we had always, we, I think we had always said like, oh, we should do a podcast where we get we're together, we have these... Four, we're fascinating. We're so amazing. <laughs> Our conversations are just amazing and everybody needs to hear this, but weren't very serious about it. And then I started listening. I started knitting. I started listening to knitting podcasts more and I just kept having thoughts in my head about things I wanted to share. And I really liked the podcasts that are two people. I, I couldn't personally imagine doing just a one person, just talking by myself and having it be any kind of interesting but I thought that a conversation would be really good yeah the things that I was thinking about talking about were the things that I love to do every day a lot of times like when you have a kid you have to throw so many of your interests out the window and you sort of keep what is really really important and for me knitting and reading were those things and cooking and I mean cooking you have to do anyway but I do I do still love cooking I do too when it's not every day, <laughs> it's sometimes yeah. it gets a little bit much. Yeah, but there are there are definitely times when it is very joyful, and I think it's not that way for everyone. So those are the things, and all of those things were what I knew Courtney loved, and I always have conversations, and I have friends that knit, and I have friends that like cooking, and I have friends that I talk to about books, but she was the one I think that I talked to about all of those things, and we had been joking about it every once in a while. And I finally, I said, I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm just, I'm doing it. I sent her an email and said, this is my idea. This is what I'm thinking. I would love to have you do it. But if you don't want to, I totally understand. But let me know if you think it's totally stupid. And she emailed back. I was like, no, this is fantastic. I'm 100% in. I think, and this will come as no surprise to anybody who's been here for a minute. Monica was so organized about this in the <laughs> beginning. And I was like, really off the cuff, like embarrassingly off the cuff. Were you? Uh-huh. Like totally winging it. I just thought I would remember who these characters were in my books when I would sit down. And boy, did I really fumble. And I remember it took me a long time to like, okay, I need to do a little bit more work here. And I always, I have to say, I always feel that there, for me, there's room for growth in this podcast. It was really difficult through the death of our parents to show up and do the work of the podcast, but it also kept me really grounded in a good way. And I know I wasn't my best self through a lot of those episodes, but it kept one foot in the real world in an important way. And then I have found as we turn a calendar page to the next year, like, oh, I really want to do better podcast illustrations. I want to spend more time on those or whatever. It's always had room for growth in my creative practice and what I'm reading. You know, like when I picked up that little teeny book devotion at the (laughs) library and I was like, I can't wait to talk about this on the podcast or with Monica, really. There's so much joy with sharing it with you, with you all, that it makes it totally infused in my everyday life. I tend to be very surface level on a lot of things. Like I love reading and I will blast through books and then not think about it. 
And so having this makes me stop and think about what I'm doing. And even with the cooking and the knitting too, it's like, why am I doing this? What do I want to do? What, you know, what, what do I really want out of this experience? (laughs) Because I'm going to have to talk about it. Well, yeah, I know a lot of folks are here for the knitting portion and maybe they just scoot through the, the art, (laughs) the art stuff. But I know you that- say that, but I love like I don't I'm not an artist in any way. I tried watercolor for a hot second and <laughs> that did not work. And I find it fascinating. I think the creative process is just great. That, and that is really tricky to articulate. And I think that this when I am making a painting and in fact, I have a new series that I'm really excited to talk to you about. It makes me slow down and think, how am I going to discuss this process with our listeners who maybe don't look and see what I'm painting or, you know, how do I make the the visual a story? Like, how do I tell the story of this? And really, I love that. I love that. <laughs> you so are much. a storyteller. As I well, am a storyteller. So. It's on my business card. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you have a master's in it, right? I do. Yeah. You are official. All right. So on the needles. So we had two questions. So I guess I'll start off with how did I learn to knit? which was one of the questions. As I said, I had tried watercolor. I think my kids were four and two, so it was probably right when they the oldest hit preschool, and they're kind of at a point where, I mean, they're obviously not self-sufficient, but compared to like a baby, a baby baby, you can kind of leave them, you can kind of do things on your own. So I was, you know, wanted to to try something new to get my my brain back in gear. So I had tried watercolor, And that just didn't work for me because of all the setup and takedown. And, you know, we didn't have a space that I could dedicate to it. So it was always getting put away, but you have to wait for it to dry. And it was just, it was not working for me. It was fun. You know, it was interesting for for that hot second that I did it. But then I decided to try knitting. And I think my husband got me a gift card for the the lamented Noe Knits. It was a beautiful little yarn store. That was a beautiful shop. Yeah, that was so nice. Right on 24th Street. Yep. So nice. So I took a class there and it was, you know, learn to knit. And it was a great first project. It was a felted bag. So you're just knitting in a circle forever and ever. And then you picked a fun novelty yarn and held that with your other yarn and you purled for a bunch. And then you went back to knitting and you made some handles and then you felted the whole thing on purpose So then your wonky first stitches weren't showing anymore. You had done a ton of knitting and, you know, and whatever beautiful yarn you wanted. And you had something you could actually kind of use. And I still, you know, I use it to carry stuff around. So it was just a fun project. We were with a great group of people. I think it class started in January. So everyone was like, New Year's resolution, learn to knit. But it was a really good group and everybody was super into it. And we all signed up for the next class, which was your first hat. And it went on from there. I think I, you know, I started socks that summer and I made a sweater that was kind of a disaster, but worked out. And that was ended up being the craft for me because I could I could do it in spurts and kind of put stuff away. And my kids weren't bothering me (laughs) to teach them very, very early on. You do not touch mom's yarn. That was key. And they actually they did generally pretty much listen to that rule. So that was good. So the other question was favorite local yarn store and hand dyed brands of yarn. So I guess Imagine It is my go to yarn store. We've Um, lost so many of our local yarn shops here in San Francisco. And we have one that's actually we had one super close that was really sweet. There's one in Haight 
that I actually that is fairly close to me that I still have not been. I have been to their booth at Stitches several times, but not been to the actual store. Firebird Yarns, I know. And I keep wanting to go and I just, I don't know. I haven't. Field trip. Field trip, yes. I do a lot of online shopping from specific dyers is kind of how I have ended up doing a lot of my shopping. And that works really well. My mostest favorite for a long time was Three Irish Girls. When it, when it was Sharon McMahon as the dyer, who now has a governor government empire, which I just find if you don't so know, hilarious. I, I'm writing this down because I want Sharon McMahon to be in our show notes. <laughs> yes, what it, it's Sharon says or something. Sharon says so. Sharon says so, and she started it. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a explains government. I think it started information like at or around 2016. Yeah. When things felt confusing and fraught. Yes. Because she was a civics teacher before she was a dyer, and then she quit dying to be a photographer, and then uh, I don't, I guess she's doing... I love it. Good, good informational yeah. stuff now. News and sound bites yeah. and nuggets. Um, but lately, I would say Neighborhood Fiber Company is, I get a ton of yarn from them, as you may have noticed. Sincere Sheep, I get a lot of stuff from there. They're from Sonoma, right? And they're yeah, they're local. Yeah. She doesn't have a shop. She sells to various people. I feel like that's I, I do a lot of you know, like I'll do shopping at at stitches and various yarn festivals. So I don't I don't know that I other than neighborhood fiber company, I don't know that I have a, a one other single dyer that I go for. I'm I'm a very ooh shiny <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of buyer. Which can get me into trouble, but then I do end up with some lovely yarn. And a verb for keeping warm? Yes, they are a beautiful local shop. And I just got some yarn from them recently. They did. Uh, they have an exclusive color from La Bienname. It was a Parisian dyer, so I had to buy some of that yarn because it was a really cool exclusive personal color. That will also always get me, <laughs> is the, you know, the, the one-off or whatever festival. Limited or, edition. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. And a lot of dyers will do, you know, supporting a cause. Again, Neighborhood Fiber does that as well. But um, I think Oink Pigments does that as well. They have some good some good ones. So there's, I'm kind of all over the place. I follow a lot of people and I just, it's something that'll catch my eye. Or if I have a s- specific project that I've sort of been mulling about and then I see yarn that I think would work really well, then I might grab it. Although I am still trying to use my, my stash since I do still have a lot of stash. But speaking of knitting, I have two finished objects. What? I know. So I finished my gnome. Choose your gnome adventure from Sarah Shira. Guess what the yarn is? Neighborhood Fiber Company. This is the leftovers from my my um, Atlantic Heart shawl. So this was choose your gnome adventure. And so there were options for all of the various parts. There were different hats you could make. There were different bodies. There were different beards. There were different arms. Well, sleeves, I guess. Oh, I guess the hands were different too. So many choices. And then you could choose the size of the yarn and how many stitches. So the size of the gnome. I made a fairly standard size gnome. So he matched with all my other gnomes. So I had a pink and black gnome for his hat was pink with some black and the body was black with some pink and then the beard was the beiginess and it has little little tassely things coming off of the beard it's very cute and this big button nose and because there's so many options this is the gnome that keeps on giving and i'll be able to to make other variations in different colors and whatnot so i enjoyed that very much that was super fun quick little gnominess 
four clues total. They each came out once a week. And since it's so quick, it was it felt a little bit anticlimactic. Be like, oh, I'm done. I still have to wait a week now. But then it was fine because it gave me plenty of time to to work on all my other things, like my garden wedding shawl, which is now done. What? Yes, you have to see it. It's amazing. I can't wait. It's so gorgeous. So the design is from Andrea Rangel, and the yarn is from Gage Dye Works. It was a, a kit thing that they did, although each of the yarn and the pattern are available separately, so you can do your own thing. It's a merino worsted weight yarn, and you got four skeins of blue that created a gradient, kind of a denim blue, and then you got another mini skein that had a pink gradient and then a green. And that one you actually cut up into two little mini skeins. And so the first two thirds of the shawl, maybe even three quarters, is super cable-y and lacy and amazing. And then there's flower color work along the edge. It was just so interesting. I mean, cables just keep you going because you want to get to the next cable cross and the lace is the same thing. You want to finish the lace pattern and see how it all looks. And then you've got, you know, offset patterns. So it's, there's always something interesting happening and you have to keep stopping to look at it. And then the gradient is happening and, oh, it was just a delight. Such a delight. I'm so excited. Now I have to block it because it is a little squishy and wonky, which is what happens with knitting, especially cables and lace and color work. So that all needs to be relaxed. I, I don't know what I'm going to wear it to, but it's comfy and cozy. And I'm just, I might just look at it, just hang it up and look at it because it's so pretty. I love it. Very exciting. Awesome. How about you? I have not been knitting, but I will tell you how I learned how to <laughs> knit. I think it was about this. I think my kids were a little bit younger, maybe babyish. And I wanted to make my youngest one of those hats that knots on the top. Oh, you know, the umbilical cord ones? Yeah. Those are adorable. And so I think I went to that shop on 24th Street and I bought a copy of Stitch and Bitch. And I bought a set of needles and a skein of yarn. And I took it home and I taught myself how to knit from that book. All of my bad habits from that initial launch are still in place. (laughs) So just how I hold the yarn is not expedient, let's say, but it totally works. I taught myself, I made a pot holder and then I made a, an intarsia bag with like spots on it that you felt. It was so huge. It was like the size of a grocery sack. Even after you felted it? No, before okay. I felted yeah. it. And that's that's and then I threw works. it in the washing machine. I got it out of Interweave Knits magazine. I threw it in the washing machine and it shrunk. I had no idea it was this was gonna happen, that it shrunk more the mm. long way than it did the width wise. Yeah. So it turned out to be like the most adorable little tote bucket bag. And I gave it to my sister and she loved it because it was like a riot of colors. And then I made a lot of hats. And then I stopped knitting for a long, long time. Although I did accompany Monica to a sock summit Mm -hmm. in Portland at one point. We went to the second one, yeah. And I think like sketched in something. I don't know what I was doing the whole time. And we went to Stitches. and Yeah, but I wasn't like, I have plenty of failures. I have... I do have a really long scarf with pockets. It's wide... It has cables 
and it has a fringe and that thing took me the better part of a lifetime to knit so scarves always take forever but i love all the patterns now and how accessible patterns are like from ravelry or etsy and and i just love handmade so that's how i learned how to knit my grandmother taught me to sew when i was really really little and that's something that i still do from time to time although not much recently and then i learned to paint I've always been drawing and making little books and weird stories and things like that. But my most vivid paint memory is my grandmother had invited a friend of hers who was quite young, like she must have been in her 20s or 30s, and I was maybe eight, six or eight. And she painted, her name was Cindy, and she brought over these like ceramic bisque birds and there were two different ones and she painted one and I painted like a partridge or a grouse or something. And she taught me how to look at the image. And then, I mean, this is so, this is something that I still struggle with. It's not like you're painting a flat bird. You're painting three dimensionally. And I can't, I wish that I had this piece of sculpture. I don't know what happened to it, but we spent all day painting this bird in detail, like all of the feathers and the eyes. And, and I just vividly remember that and the feet and, uh, so what I would do to find that bird right now, cause I'm still painting birds. It's so funny. Anyway, so that is when I started painting. And then I took, I took art classes all through high school and all through college. I never felt like my drawing was as realistic as it should be. And it wasn't until I, I heard somebody say, if you wanted it to be hyper-realistic, you might as well just take a photograph. And I really appreciate people who can paint hyper-realistically or draw super-realistic, but I also feel like my own line work now has a different value, different character to it, and I appreciate my own hand so much more. There is no better way for me to spend my time than drawing and painting. I am my best self when I'm drawing and painting. I lose all track of time in the best way. I get so much joy out of it, even the failures. I'm going to talk about failures later, but it is definitely the most satisfying, creative, joyful, curious thing that I do. I just absolutely love it. And I really think the only way that I've been able to improve is when I started doing really daily work on it and going into my art room or my studio every single day and drawing, which to roll into my right now what's happening on the easel, I have a new series. I don't know the last time I've been able to say that to you, but I am really excited. So a week ago, I was feeling pretty stuck when we were coming up on our 100th episode. Normally on the anniversary of our podcast, we talk about what we've done over the past year and we do kind of a tally. And when I started looking through, I have felt like my output hadn't been as great, which is a little discouraging. So I went through my sketchbooks and I realized that I had a whole bunch of sketches and half-finished paintings that were really interesting to me. And so I took them and photocopied them. I have like a little photocopy printer thing and I put them all up on the wall and I 
am so excited because I feel like although I had been feeling like I wasn't doing a lot of finished work, like finished paintings, I didn't feel like I was ready to host an open studio. I don't have a cohesive, I have plenty of birds and that kind of thing, but what am I working on after these two little gallery pieces that went? So this collection that I have sort of plucked and foraged from my sketchbook work makes me feel like, oh, that's where I've been working is in the sketchbook. And I know I talked about this a couple months ago that I was doing composed still lives where, oh, I like that teacup and oh, that panda is awesome. And somehow merging the panda and the teacup. And that's what's happening in all of these weird little worlds. And they feel like there's a story behind each one. They are not they're not um, connected at all, except that I'm kind of calling it creature collections. There's always an animal and then there's some weird things. And then in my head, it all makes sense. I have one that has a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton. And then behind it on the wall is one of those old vintage charts with owls. Then there's a terrarium that's all mm -hmm. condensed, which is, I'm not sure how I'm going to render that yet. And there's a bottle of ink and an fountain pen. And then I had found a, a vintage tube of Amway lipstick. And that's, that's going in the way back machine for some of you. But my grandmother used to have them on her dresser. And this all makes sense in my head that somebody has collected these objects and is using them. So that's how these paintings are feeling to me. I have no idea of what they're going to become. And I think that there are a few more somewhere in my brain and hands. So I've taken my sketches and now I am painting them in the hope that they'll feel cohesive, at least in terms of style and structure and color palette. And I have three painted and all I want to do is, well, present company aside, later, later I want to go and just paint. That's all I want to do is paint. It's so exciting. Cool. It sounds a little bit like your calendar, but expanded. I think I was trying... Those were very... I mean, those were just like two objects. Right. Obviously. And totally. A lot more with that same sort of joyful, fun, random, I think, but makes sense kind of... I think angle. I was... I'm definitely aiming to do a calendar, but part of me was like, oh, is this appropriate for October? And that... I needed to get away from that mindset. Like, it doesn't have to be a... Fin it doesn't have to be a final product. And I'm not a product painter by nature. I like to paint weird things. Yep. I loved painting the soy sauce or not soy sauce. Bailey's. <laughs> the Bailey's. It looked like a bottle of soy sauce. The one on bit, the... yeah. But I, I like to paint weird things. And the stories that grow as I'm doing it are just unconscious and awesome and funny. And hmm. they yeah, make, that sounds excellent. It makes sense in my head. Oh. I mean, that's how we ended up with the podcast is that I just right. had things going on in my head. So. Right. So I'm hoping to good. share those as I go along because I don't know what they're going to be, but it's gouache on paper. And I know that I keep promising like acrylic, acrylic. No, I'm doing gouache on paper. Sorry. <laughs> You're an so, artist. You can't be stopped. I... I just get into these veins of things and it's, I need to follow my curiosity and joy. And that is really what drives me forward. And we'll see, we'll see what it becomes. Oh, it sounds awesome. Thank Very you. Very excited. All right. So on the table, 
How'd you learn to cook? I don't remember. I mean, I remember cooking with my mom. She had a thing in the summers, which I've talked about because I've done this with my own kids, where at a certain point we were in charge of making, making in, in quotes, dinner. I love that. Once a week. And, you know, obviously she was there every step of the way and, you know, probably did most of the work, but it, it, it worked you know, and making cookies and stuff. And one of one of my favorite meals that I remember that I always thought was just amazing. It was, I think it, it was from like a Betty Crocker kids cookbook or something. And it was a backwards dinner where you started with dessert. And they always had a picture of it. It was, I don't remember what it was, but it was like an ice cream sundae and then some simple thing for dinner. And then the salad was, it was a like a fruit salad, but you, you arranged it like a flower. So it was like maybe an upside down peach half. It was all canned fruit because <laughs> this was the 70s. And then, I don't know, you used pears or something. And there was probably a maraschino cherry involved as well. And I just thought that was just the best, best thing. And that's probably where my love of like menu planning comes from because it was a whole thing that I thought was just great. So those are those are most of my cooking memories is cooking in the summer with my mom. Oh, and then top three vegetarian cookbooks. That was a question that we had from a... From Kelly on yeah. Ravelry. I mean, weekday vegetarians is probably my my top. I and really any anything by Jenny Rosenstrock, I'm a big fan of. That one I keep I really do keep going back to it. And they are they really at least for me, they do generally all take half an hour mm. max to make. I mean, if it's like a bean stew and you're cooking the beans from dry, then obviously that's gonna take extra time, but they the whole meal thing generally takes half an hour. So that one's definitely top. I really like East. That one's vegan as well. Mira Soda. Mira yeah. Soda. That one you have to pick through a little more to get weeknight ones. But they are generally very accessible and you can pull things out. You don't have to <laughs> make them exactly as as called, but they, are, they do have a little extra something if you do find all the ingredients. Depends on how easy it is for you to, to access them. Those are my top two, I think, at this point. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll pull things out of Smitten Kitchen every day. It has a really good vegetarian section. So I like a lot of a lot of hers as well. I have been cooking for a really long time. And there were points <laughs> in my life when I've said, when I grow up and have a house of my own, I'm going to eat out every single night. <laughs> my sister and I swore that. That is because our mom was a chef, is a chef. When we were really little, she worked at a country club and made French pastries every day. Like she would get up and go in super early and make croissants and palmiers. And, and, but they also made these chocolate chip cookies that I swear to God were like, I don't know, eight inches in diameter, seven, seven inches, monster chocolate chip cookies. And I really wanted to recreate those, but the recipe was for quantity you know, so it was like 14 pounds of flour, like something <laughs> ridiculous. And I'm not a math kid. So it took me a long time to learn how to take some of her recipes and kitchenize them, like home kitchenize them. But then as we were growing up, when we were early teens and then through high school, she worked at a place that was an, it was an institutional kitchen that served diplomats and elder hostels and foreign nationals and youth groups and Oh my gosh, just like incredible place. Her role there was to run the whole kitchen show. It was intense, to put it lightly. When we came home from school, we were expected to help out, or I was at least. I don't remember if my siblings were. So 
I would come home from school and it would be like, all right, we need a thousand Swedish meatballs. And I would just roll Swedish meatballs. I hated Swedish meatballs for a really long time because when you roll thousands of them, you grow a little bit of (laughs) animosity. I've also told stories about how I'd walk in from school and she'd say, oh, can you make me six pie crusts before you go do homework? And because I was a 15-year-old who wanted no business making pie crusts, I would just shove this stuff into the food processors, a splash of ice water or like vodka because we had Russian groups, whatever. And I made really hasty pie crust so fast that the pie crust was perfect. And that's why she kept asking me because it was hasty teenager pie crust. So when I went off to college, my sister and I swore to each other that we would never ever cook again. We had left that life and we were on our way. And then when I was living in my first apartment, I was secretly cooking. I didn't tell my (laughs) sister. And then she called me one night when she was out of the house and she was like, what's mom's meatloaf recipe? (laughs) She didn't want to ask. We have laughed about this ever since. Like, what's what's in mom's meatloaf? And so she and I have both been cooking ever since. It's really hard to pull that out of your DNA and your upbringing when you know how food is supposed to taste and you have all of the skills. Like, why deny yourself? At least now you can make the things that you want to make, yeah. including Swedish meatballs, if it appeals. So that is how... I learned to cook begrudgingly and by force. However, I'm very appreciative because now when I make four pounds of meatballs and it gets eaten by my family, it's a little bit more satisfying, if you know what I mean. I also, I have made so many mistakes in the kitchen and that also brings me this weird amount of joy. I think the, the failures are like when I totally messed up that strawberry shortcake, yep. like I will never mix up baking soda and baking powder ever again. Like you do it once, it's a complete, complete catastrophe and you learn your lesson. <laughs> so that's how I learned how to cook. I love to go to the Spanish table. There's one here and there's one in Berkeley. I like to look through some of the food shops on 24th Street because there's a cheesemonger over there. There's a couple. Oh, did they close though? The cheesemonger might have closed. And then there's a couple import stores too. That's where I got the fancy soy sauce. Mm -hmm. I love to go into those import grocery stores or like the Russian market. Yeah. And then my favorite cookbooks, nobody asked, but here they are. Because we aren't vegetarian, we're omnivores. I'm claiming the second Smitten Kitchen, which which is yeah. Smitten Kitchen every day. Yep. That is my... But we'll see what happens when the third one comes out. I know. I love that cookbook. I also love Tuesday Nights by Christopher Kimball. I think that that book cracked open a whole other set of flavor profiles. Some of the Zatar and... Do they have sumac uh, in there? Sumac, like more maybe Persian or Middle Eastern flavors that I wouldn't normally uh, gravitate towards. I just really love that he's made those more accessible. And then something like I always paw through how to bake everything, which is a Mm. Mark Bittman cookbook. And it is especially helpful if you're watching the Great British Baking Show and you want to know. Which the new season is out on Netflix. Right. It's one one episode a week. (sighs) I know they're. 
so frustrating. Rationing them. Yeah. I think it's really fun to his his recipes are pretty simple, but he's got everything in there. So I keep it on the coffee table when I'm watching Great British Baking Show. Like, how should you make that? Because sometimes they don't really tell you. <laughs> and that brings me joy to use the cookbook. It is truly fun. I like Melissa Clark's Dinner Changing the Game. I don't use it as much now because it is pretty meat heavy, but she does have a, a, a good selection of vegetarian items and there's always some interesting recipes in there and she has a new one out now that i think is one pan cooking which i am waiting on from the library yeah to see how i love anything how how meaty it is but yeah um speaking speaking of meat i did have a i have a core cooking memory with my mother's father who was 100 percent sicilian and he taught me how to make his version of meat sauce which is gonna crack everybody up because it was basically brown off your ground beef saute some onions put in a ton of garlic and then a jar of prego (laughs) (laughs) he was kind of a bachelor at that point And I have refined my meat sauce a little bit, my bolognese, so that it's a little, you know, the carrots and actual tomatoes and not prego. But that is a a fond core cooking memory was learning how to do his sauce, which was pretty excellent. I was also thinking as you were talking about moving out and not wanting to cook at all. When I first got an apartment, I went on this fancy cooking binge and was having these elaborate dinner parties. And I had a, a good friend that I that I met who kind of inspired that. She was a few years older and really good at entertaining. And, and I was like, oh, this is, this is how I want to live. And so I just went off on all these menu planning and fancy dinners. And then we were in Seattle and we were in a supper club for a couple of years. With That's like, so fun. It was us and another couple and then six other people. And we would rotate hosting and the host would pick the theme and everybody would bring a dish. And so we were having these elaborate 10 course meals and, you know, making handmade pasta and we'd have sorbet in between. And it was just, it was delightful and does not happen anymore. Although I did do a couple of family ones when we, people had little kids, which did not last long, but was super fun while it lasted. This seems like something we could resurrect when the kids are gone though. Very true. I mean, we could realistically do it now. It's not like they (laughs) take a lot of watching at this point. I have thought about it. I think I was thinking about it and then there was, you know, global pandemic began, but I think we're getting to a point where we could bring it back. It was super fun. Super fun. Yeah. I had a roommate who also encouraged cooking, but it wasn't as fancy. But some of those recipes that she and I discovered then I'm still using in my rotation now, like the pesto chicken and like um, pork tenderloin with apples. And And it is fun because if you just can focus on one dish and then uh, and everybody is just focusing on one dish, then it's it's all just amazing. amazing. And then you can. Yeah, it's great. Super fun. All right. But actual cooking. Oh, speaking of Persian flavors, I made a Persian zucchini frittata from One Pan, Two Plates by Carla Snyder, which is a whole vegetarian cookbook that one of my out of the library explorations, because we're down to one kid. And a lot of times, like on, say, a Friday night, he is not home. So it's just the two of us. 
so I can do some interesting things. And this was one of them. And I really like this. I mean, I've done frittatas and they're usually, I would say, Italian leaning, just basic veg some cheese. So this one had Persian flavors. I mean, basically. And it has rice in it? It has rice in it. Yeah, it was interesting. I was, so you grate the zucchini and that's your, your veg in there. It has some turmeric and, you know, garlic and whatnot. So the it just gave it such an interesting flavor. She had you throw a scoop of rice, just leftover rice in there to give it a little more heft, which I wasn't going to do. But then I had a little bit of mushroom risotto leftover. So I said, all right, I'll throw that in there just for fun. And it worked. It was fine. It was great. And the grated zucchini and the turmeric just, it was such a, it was just a little bit of a different flavor. You guys know how I like that. Just a little bit different. It was really tasty. That one was a win in my book and, you know, super easy and late summer you've got a bunch of zucchini and then smitten kitchen for the win and i posted a photo of this the eggplant in voltini which she had posted i think it was in her newsletter a few weeks ago you slice eggplant long ways and broil it so it gets very loose and then you wrap it around a ricotta mixture and put it in the pan with a red sauce and and bake it It was easier than I thought it would be. It looked like it was going to be super complicated weekend cooking. I think like if you had worked from home and had a little bit of extra time on a weeknight, it would be doable. But there were a few more steps. It wasn't super complicated, but it was delicious. I mean, I found it to be delicious. I love eggplant. My kid did not love it, (laughs) but he doesn't like eggplant. And that was why I think I alluded to this on my Instagram post. I served with a kale gnocchi from Trader Joe's because I had it in the freezer. And so this kid loves lasagna. So this was sort of like lasagna, but it was eggplant. And he loves gnocchi. And this was sort of like gnocchi, but it was a really strong kale flavor. So Really? It was, was, yeah, it was pretty kale-y. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is dark green. There is a lot of kale in that. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. So I enjoyed the whole thing. I thought it was great. And then you could put some of the the red sauce on the kale and it was just... (laughs) on the gnocchi you know so it was it was just all sorts of goodness but my kid was like i don't know how i feel about all of this it's lasagna but eggplant and it's gnocchi but it's kale and i just i don't know what i'm doing but much simpler than it looks it looks a little fancy because you roll the eggplant around the the filling but it actually worked out really well and was very tasty and i would recommend it you know maybe on a weekend if you just need that little extra time or i mean and it doesn't make a ton but you could certainly make more. And then I also did her magic apple plum cobbler, which I think is an older recipe, but she mentioned it in maybe that same post newsletter. Yeah. And it was delicious. And it's kind of one of those magic cakes where you put all the the dry stuff and then you pour the hot water, I think, over it. And it somehow magically makes cake. It didn't have the, um, like the gooey base, but the whole thing was just light and fluffy and I don't think it was hot water either. I think it was melted butter, which <laughs> obviously that's going to be Details. good. Yeah. And apples and plums. So it was this nice late summer, early fall flavor. Oh, so good. And we really have been noticing because my husband had a birthday. So I did the Boston cream pie as I always did. And everything is lasting so much longer. I miss my big kids so much, but we get so much more dessert in this house now that he is not here. So, Aww. you know, silver linings. How about you? Oh, my goodness. I miss my big kid, too. Not a ton of 
fresh new recipes, but I've been going back through the my old America's Test Kitchen. I had taken the newest one out of the library, um, but I had a 2010 on my shelf, and they have a chicken stew in there, like a faster chicken stew, where they make the base out of ground chicken. Mm. And it just does it faster, basically. We had a little head cold in the house, and so... This fit the bill for what the household needed. So the chicken stew with the ground chicken stock base, totally great recipe. And we we had a lot left over because a big kid is away. I also made with it the five ingredient beer bread from Half-Baked Harvest. She's been talking about this a lot on her blog. It comes together super fast. I had, oh geez, I forget the beer that I used an easy pilsner or something. She makes recommendations in the recipe. And my only misstep was that you mix together these ingredients, whatever, flour, beer, I'm totally going to forget the other three. And then you're supposed to put six tablespoons of butter on top of the bread when you put it into the oven. And I just wasn't really paying attention. And I just put six little pats of butter And it was probably half of what should have been on top of there. And it still had a beautiful crust and browned up nicely, but could have used a little bit more butter. So don't skip on the butter is my lesson there. And then, because today's our 100th episode, I made a celebration cake. It's so cute. And I never make cake. That's true, because your people don't like cake. Yeah, my people are, well, historically, my people are cookie- brownie people but nobody complained about the cake last night at all nobody so this was a recipe that i found from maybe in a pinch or something like that i was gonna go with an epicurious one that had soy sauce in it but then when i actually sat down to bake it and i looked at the reviews it wasn't so favorable Mm. So back to the drawing board, this is a buttermilk chocolate cake. The cake is awesome. What I was trying to do was like make a little cake for Monica because it has real flour in it and some of her people don't eat flour flour and then a little cake for us. And it is a hot water cake. So you make the all the batter and then you pour in a cup of hot water and it's a really loose batter that rises beautifully. And so I did Monica's in some ramekins and I did ours in tiny cake pans and ours came out pretty flat and Monica's are like a mile high. Mine is so tall. I know. The frosting, however, I really wish that I had gone the distance and done a layer of chocolate mousse in between the layers instead of just the frosting because I feel like it's really sweet, but you be the judge and let me know. Okay, I will. I might share it with Boy too because he can. Yeah. He eats flour. The cake part, though, is stellar. And I'm pretty economical with the frosting layer, so I don't think it'll be totally overpowering. I think it'll be just fine. I'll be okay with it. I'm sure that we will eat it all. And the, Very happily. And then the, the, the challenge, though, ultimately came down to, how am I going to get this cute little cake that's kind of too tall for anything and too big for, I don't know. So I had to like MacGyver a way to get it over here. And then, then it was sliding around and oh. it, yeah. It did not go the way of the broth though. It did not go the way of the broth, <laughs> but I definitely need better travel wear for bringing you a cake. 
So on the nightstand. How did you learn how to read? Do you remember? No. I remember going to the library and checking out as many books as they would let me all of the time. I think my favorite book when I was little was, how I remember it is that it was called Saucy. It was about a little dog that was pregnant and her family was trying to pick out places where she could have her puppies and Saucy did her own thing and went off and they couldn't find her and then they found her and she had the puppies and it was adorable. And that was my favorite, favorite book. That's really cute. My grandmother had a set of books on book and record. Mm -hmm. I had a little record player there and they would let me do it myself. And I was really little, like three. And I taught myself how to read from following along in the book and then it chimes and then you turn the page. And so I could read really, really young, like that kind of stuff, really, really young. And then have never had a problem with reading. And I read to my siblings, both have slightly battled with a little bit of dyslexia. I just feel really lucky that I had that memory to, I think I memorized most of the words until I learned phonetics and, or phonics. (laughs) I think we had phonics and now it's phonetics or is it switched? I don't know. I don't know. But my, my hope always has been to raise readers. And so our house is chock full of books and we, um, we decorate with books. Yeah. Totally decorate with books. And in fact, but all things that we've read. Yeah. For the most part, it's not, we have not bought books to to decorate. Although you have, you have yours arranged color. I have mine arranged in color blocks and I have received a fair amount of flack for that. However, I'm also a visual person yeah. and I know what color middle March's spine is. And so there, and I it can works totally for me. See that, yeah. And that's that. And it's not like you bought the books to have the colors. No, no, I just them that way. color block them in that yeah. order. Plus all of Virginia Wolf has a black spine and that makes it really easy to group oh, there them. You go. <laughs> Come at me about the color blocking. Yeah. yeah I reading has always been a huge part of my life. I had hoped to raise readers. It has fallen off a little bit for them in their teenage years, but I'm hoping that it will yeah, that it'll come back to them. They were, they were both really huge readers and I think they got to high school and the amount of other reading they have to do is just kind of made it difficult yeah. to work it in. And, and when they, they do, they, they love it. So <laughs> we shall see. Other than they also decide like, I'm going to read Lord of the Rings, which... That takes a while to get through. <laughs> totally. No matter who you are. Oh, and then favorite bookstores. Yeah. Local. Tell, oh, where so do many. You... I mean, I tend to, there's so many bookstores in the city, so I just tend to stay local. So I go to West Portal Books a lot and Folio Books in Noe Valley, Green Apple in my neighborhood because they have new and used, which is great. Yeah. There's, I mean, every neighborhood has a bookstore, so you could, you can go to so many. Thank books. goodness. Yeah. I like Green Apple and I like the one in West Portal whose name I can never West Portal Books. Okay. (laughs) And then for cooking stuff, I like Mm -hmm. Omnivore, which is over in Noe Valley. Yeah, that's fun. That's just cookbooks and and cooking magazines and things. Yeah. I absolutely love the public library. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) I just feel like it's the greatest place on earth. (laughs) Libraries are so good. Do you have a favorite branch? I mean, my local is in a, a Carnegie Library building, so. Is it really? Yeah, so it's had their 100th anniversary a 
few years ago. So it's been around for a while and it's, yeah, yeah. it's very nice. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't realize that. There's a few of them in the city. So, yeah. Ours isn't in a fancy building, our local branch, but I love that they know me. It feels like cheers. I go in and they're like, Courtney. <laughs> oh, because you still get actual books. I tend to, I used to go in all the time with the boys and it's right next, it was right next to the elementary school. So you could just spend so much time there. And I just don't go in as much anymore because I do the, the eBooks and then they have the, you know, the, the pickup where you just go to the shelf and grab your books and check them out. So I don't, I don't interact with people quite as much anymore. I interact with these two librarians fairly often. One is a tech guy, because sometimes if there's a problem or if I need something, and then the other one, she is often the one who's shelving my holds, and I always have a lot of holds. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I have been, I have been doing more uh, actual books lately, but we'll jump into my books. Yeah, what have you read first one was from my book club. It's so fun. We're back. It's book club season again. Very exciting. Uh, so the first one was The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson. This one I laughed because it's a romance, but it's by a dude and the dude is the main character and Bill Gates recommended it. So people didn't realize it was romance. I thought that was funny. <laughs> I was like, this is great. Welcome to my favorite genre. And my husband was like, it's it's not like a real romance. I'm like, no, it is. <laughs> anyway, um, so it's a guy. He is a genetics professor and he is very particular about everything. And he decides that he has not been very successful in love. So he's going to come up with his own questionnaire and find a wife and enter Rosie. And she is chaos. Shenanigans ensue. And this one... I think it came out in 2013, so it's been out for a while. There's two sequels, maybe even a fourth on the way, talk of a movie, all these things. And it made waves because the main character, although it is never said specifically, is probably on the autism spectrum. So you get kind of a first-person narration of what he's going through and the way he's thinking. It's one of, you know, one of the first books that does it. There's the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is similar but this one is him as a romantic lead, and it's funny. I think this was the first book we'd had in a while that everyone at the end gave it a thumbs up, which was That's kind fun. of amazing. Yeah. I feel like Helen Huang has done this better and a lot more meaningfully and emotionally with better characters, but it was a fun, quick read. I think I read it in like an afternoon. It was not a difficult book to get through. There were parts when I was like, Ugh, this, I don't know about this, and then he would have these really beautiful moments. Yeah, I just I think some of his characters aren't as deep as they could be. But if you want a light kind of beach read that gives you a different insight, and has some fun adventures, like they're, they live in Australia, but they go to New York for a while and uh, definitely a fun read. And then Nona the Ninth by Tamsin Muir, oh, third book in the Locked Tomb series. The first one is affectionately known as Lesbian Necromancers in Space. So I have talked about these before. I've been waiting and waiting. She had a third book planned and then loved this character so much that she redid everything. And so we've had to wait an extra year for this book, which is very annoying, but well worth the wait. So Nona lives on a planet that is under siege from the Emperor's forces, but she loves her life. She lives with 
two or three great people who take care of her and are teaching her things. She goes to school where she gets to be a teacher's aide, and she has a great gang of friends, and one of the teachers has a dog that she gets to watch, and so she's spending a lot of time planning her first birthday party because she has been awake in this body for only six months. So she's still learning things, and her caretakers won't tell her who they think she is. And, and we as readers have some suspicions because of what has gone on in the other books, but we don't know for sure because, you know, things haven't, seem to go... Haven't been revealed. Yes, which is how it works. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this was a great book. I almost feel like I need to reread it again because she has so much going on in all of these books. And then there's a cliffhanger and she she does an amazing job of changing everything that you thought was true about this world and just mixing it all up so you kind of you need to you need to think about what's going on and and remember what you'd read before but then set that all aside and they're just amazing books i did really miss the two main characters from the first two books are not as prominent in this book and i really miss them so i was very sad about that they do show up in parts of it and you also get a lot of history of the the world, which was really interesting. So you, I think you definitely need to start at the beginning of the series. You can't, you can't jump in in the middle. I'm, you know, just waiting for the final, final book that comes out next fall. We'll see what happens. Very interesting. And I listened to The Bullet, The Mist by Richard Osman, which is the third one in the Old People Solving Murder Mysteries <laughs> series. <laughs> it's the same group of four. They get together on Thursdays and look at old cold cases. And so they're looking at one of a news reporter who went missing 10 years ago. Her car was found at the bottom of a cliff. The body was never found. And so they're trying to figure out what happened to her. Shenanigans ensue. And there's all the great relationships that we have before. There's some new great relationships. You know, just how you have friendships when you're older, things that you miss, meeting new people. There's another great scene between one of the men and his best friend's grandson. You know, he's like, I knew who to call because this this is the person that just always understands me and just doesn't question and just, you know, it's great to bounce ideas off him because he doesn't think things are weird. And it's just really beautiful. It's funny. We're getting some additional romances between various characters. And I'm very excited. Apparently, I think this one they're looking at doing a TV series. So Ooh. I think that'll be fun. There was a an interview with the author at the end of it. And he kind of said he'll keep writing him. I think he's committed to four. And then he'll just see what happens. So there's at least one more coming out. But he said he would keep writing him as long as people want to keep reading him. Then The Inheritance of Orchidea Divina by Zoreda Cordova. Orchidea Divina is dying and she calls her family to come back home to be with her and receive their inheritance. And they come back. She has many descendants. She'd had five husbands, so she has lots of kids and they all have kids and everyone comes back. And she is turning into a tree and she leaves them some words of wisdom and becomes a tree. <laughs> and so they all disperse and go back to their lives. And some of them have luck because they follow her instructions and some of them don't. And then they start to realize that something is going very wrong and they have to uncover secrets from her past to make everything good in this life. It was a wild ride. I really liked it. It did not at all go where I thought it was going, but it was this great combination of magic and realism and family and struggle. And it's a Ecuadorian family that has come to the U.S. So that was kind of cool because they go back to Guayaquil. And so it was a whole different part of the world that 
at least in American stories, we don't usually see that. So this was a really, really fun, great book that I very much enjoyed. And then The Many Daughters of a Fong Moy by Jamie Ford, which you just read last time. So good. That opening chapter, I got to the end of it and was like, oh, that is an opening chapter. Just draws you right in. This is the story of the first Chinese woman in America, and she was like put on literally his, the yeah. first Chinese and woman. And actually and actually, like uh, he based it on this actual person. And obviously he <laughs> had lots of artistic license in what happened to her because she was the actual person was on stage for a while and then nobody knows what happened to her. So he imagines what happened, what happened to her descendants. I think you get about five or six yeah. of her daughters and granddaughters and down the line into the future into like the 2040s and climate change in Seattle all over the world lots of generational trauma and how we live with that and how we experience it and how we fix it recover from it move forward in a in a productive way or not or not it was beautiful i thought it was really well written i enjoyed all the characters it does jump around between all the characters, so you do have to keep track of who is who and when when and where we are. There was a nice little family tree in the in the front, so that was very helpful. And I, re- I really enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was great. I had not read his The Bitter and Sweet one. So this was my first book that I've read of his, but I would definitely go back and read some of his other ones. Yeah. And then Haven by Emma Donahue, which you have read... I think this is the first time this has happened that we both read the same book the same in time. In 100 episodes because yeah. we didn't plan this. No, we just both. This is not like a cookbook review where no. we both This is It just came out. Spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah, and I think and I got mine from the library. Yeah, mine library is book. a library. Do you want to do you want to take take it over? Yeah, cuz I only have two books for you. There you go. So, we're going to dial the Wayback Machine again to 1550s Florence. Oh, wait, we're no, not, we're I'm not sorry, talking about wrong book. <laughs> like Scratch that. Even more way back. We're going to dial the way, way back machine to 7th century Ireland. So this year is 600-ish. We've got three monks, Art, Trion, and Cormac. And Art has this vision that he needs to take two other monks and go to the end of the earth and be an, what do they call that? Like an esthite? Is that the word? Like a... Like a hermit. (laughs) That's easier to pronounce. It is easier. Um, And so this is based on actual events where these monks left the island of Ireland and went to a remote island off the coast just south of the Dingle Peninsula. So west, southwest coast of Ireland. And there's a a lot of remote rocky islands out there and they built these beehive huts and lived out there. And it was not really a monastery, but it was definitely a monk enclave for a time. So this story is how they got there how they like rode it's an imagining of the first right. monks to go there rode themselves out it's treacherous waters like you if you're visiting i have actually visited you have to go on the most favorable of conditions only certain times of year 
it's really hard to disembark to get onto the island. And then it is treacherous on a clear sunny day to climb these slate stairs up this very steep island to get to the top where the beehive huts are. And, and the island is Skellig Michael, which they used in the recent Star Wars films for Luke Skywalker's right place where he was hanging Which out. was a huge draw for my three guys, but I went for the Puffins, yep. which play a huge role in this book, which was... <laughs> oh my gosh. So, they, so there's nothing on this island. There's barely any dirt. There's no... It's, they and they it's, end up trying it's a, to grow it's things. It's a bird and, island yeah. in the in the summer season, but they don't realize that birds migrate, so they're counting on the birds being there, and then the birds up and leave at the end of August, and then they're left with nothing. So are the the lead guy, the, the prior, the chief hermit, is. He says that seafood and uh, shellfish, shellfish and lobster are like sinful. There's un, they can't be eaten, and that's really the only thing that they can forage from the base of the island. And Trion, who is young and practical and nature loving, and also like hungry, <laughs> hungry, realizes that this is a big missed opportunity. He's seeing it with a different set of eyes. And then Cormac is losing his sight. He's older and he wants to be on this. It feels like a second or a last chance for him to forge a relationship with God. But the relationship that Art wants them to form with God is not necessarily one that is sustainable. Holy catfish. This book is intense for sixth century hermit monks. Yeah. I love the sense of place. I love the intensity. I love that you didn't know where it was going. Yeah, because there there's these two battles between that giving everything to God and also the beauty of the world and that hierarchy. They had sworn obedience to art as their prior, even though he's making questionable choices or, you know, what we as modern people, I think, and well, to be fair, Trian, Tr Trian and Cormac were, were questioning his choices as well. But yeah, but how do you how do you honor God? How do you honor the world? The tensions between the men, you know, it's just it's Yeah, the tension between them and then like the the man versus nature. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Their survival was dependent on a lot of different things. And when you ignore those different things to your own detriment, I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, I've been to Skellig Michael. The bee hut hive huts are still standing. Mm -hmm. All these seasons yeah. and hurricanes. I love the descriptions of build how they built things uh -huh. and the, and how they were working with the rocks and oh, that was really cool. I did also think it was interesting. There was less plot in this one. It was really just we're on this island and here's what happens. Whereas her previous book, The Pull of the Stars, so much more plot. There was Absolutely. things happening you know, character building, but also events and, you know, both, both great books. I wouldn't say that this is a joyful read by any stretch, Oh no! but I still really liked it. And part of it's because I have been there and that you're right. The sense of place is really strong and by all accounts, she hasn't yet been there either. So I think that's pretty incredible that she was able to accomplish I mean, the island is like a fourth character in a lot of ways. Yeah. The island is louder than any god that they could have 
listened to. And I think it's interesting that they ignored everything that the island was telling them. It's a ride. It is a ride of a book. It's not terribly long. It's only 200 and some pages. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely weird, weird, spontaneous coincidence of our books there. That's fun. What was your other one? The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh, I have that one on my shelf too. I told you people, so many good books are coming out. This was delicious. (sighs) Okay, there's so many things that I love about this book. How do I count the ways? Okay, 1550s Florence. So her previous book was Hamnet. Right, Hamnet. we were wondering why we were so excited, which was, that was an amazing work. Okay, well... This is so good. So we have 15-year-old Lucrezia de Medici. You might have heard of the Medici family. She was kind of the, in this fictionalized version, the ugly duckling of the Medici family offspring. Her parents are super well-connected and her whole family is. And she, as a daughter, is, of course, a pawn that her father can play to gain favor in the political climate of Italy in that time. So her marriage was the most important thing that she could do, was make an advantageous marriage and then create, you know, babies. So she is married off at the ripe age of 15 to, actually in real life, I think she was married off at 13, but then maybe kept home for a bit. I don't know. She's married off to the Duke of Ferrara, And then in real life, she dies a year later of, they think, tuberculosis or something like that. And so this is a fictionalized imagining of what that life, that year of marriage was like for her. And it is intense. And it starts out really talking about her childhood and how she was different than her siblings and had a really strong relationship with her nurse. Not necessarily her milk mother, but the woman who raised her. Like the Romeo and Juliet nurse. Yes, exactly. And then she is taken to Ferrara right after her marriage and what it's like to be the wife, the very young wife of this 27-year-old hardcore political wannabe Duke guy and the drama that's happening at his court with his sisters and mother. And I don't even know the historical. There's, I'm sure there's tons of, because he's a man, there's tons of data about what happened to him, but not so much about her. But in real life, there are two paintings of Lucretia de' Medici. One is in Virginia, of all places, and one is in, I think, in the Uffizi. So I think that Maggie O'Farrell was able to base a lot of the story off of these two paintings because in the year that she was married, she was painted twice. That's kind of interesting. And the information that you can glean from these two paintings, coupled with a storyline about Lucretia being an artist herself and making these little Tivolo tile paintings. And so she's an artist and she's interesting. And this marriage, you can tell it's fraught. I'm not going to tell anything more because Monica's reading it next, but get this on your book list stat because it is a gem. Cool. 
<laughs> All right, our final questions. Your favorite episode and why? I had a few that I thought of. I want to say the first ones, just because we got started and that was fun and we didn't know what we were doing, but we did it anyway. Please don't go listen to those. <laughs> because I was definitely playing it fast and loose. <laughs> I think you were amazing. I will say that editing is easier now that we kind of know what we're doing. I'm so sure. Glad. And then I think when we finally got back together after recording apart for a while. Right. We... I don't remember anything about the episode, just that it was so exciting to be yeah. back in person. And We recorded over Zoom mm -hmm. for most of COVID, almost a year and a half. I don't, re really I don't remember. remember. It was a while. We had... Kelly did such a great job stepping in for me when oh, yeah, when I would times. travel or when my family was needing me elsewhere. Yeah. And I still am hugely appreciative of that. And I bet people miss hearing from another voice now and again. That was fun. That was always interesting because <laughs> it was very confusing because I and she did such a great job, but it was it was just a different voice right <laughs> next to me. That right. was fun. And then the episode we did last time was just a really fun one. We finished and I was like, oh, we were on it. And I don't know if you guys thought that, but I had a really a great time doing it. Um, and it was just sometimes we're kind of, we're not going through the motions, but you know, we've had a bad day or, you know, it's, it's just not, it's not all that. But that one was just, I, I just felt really good about that episode. When I was thinking about my favorite episodes, I was thinking of my favorite moments as a speaker and then mm -hmm. what were my favorite listener moments of hearing you tell a story so my favorite episodes of me that sounds so weird are anything where i have a catastrophe like i kind of love when i mess something up and can come and tell you about it because i think failures are super funny and I think other people like to hear that too, that this is not the Martha Stewart channel or no, whatever. No. And I think, you know, the when I listened to two different audiobooks and I thought it was the same, or when I took that brioche class and had no business taking <laughs> that it. That was awesome. And then I loved all of your episodes when you're in one of your, like the sock madness Oh, yeah, yeah. I was so eager to come and hear, like, where are we at? <laughs> you I know, know, I haven't been done it, except for my gnomes. I haven't done many knit-alongs lately. Because you are competitive for the both of us, and mm -hmm. so that's really delightful. But I think my all-time favorite episode mm -hmm. is from Sacramento between two hotel beds. Oh, yeah. Because we, we took the podcast set up to a hotel room and in order to get the best acoustics possible, Monica and I crouched on the floor between the two hotel beds and recorded on an overturned recycling bucket. <laughs> it felt like we should have had a pillow fort in there. Yep. And then we were having so much fun and it was so much new stuff and all of the food and it was really joyful. And that was those really are fun. my favorite. And we're going to do it again next year. Stitches West is open for registration. <laughs> We have our hotel. I, I registered for some classes. I'm looking at restaurants and I the, can't uh, wait to go back to the museum. And you could take the Brioche and Tarja class again. No, it, thank is, you. it is back. <laughs> it is back, people, if anybody wants to experience it for themselves. Very exciting. All right. Oh my gosh, we did it. 100 episodes. 
Until next time, continue to do something that you love every day. Thanks, everyone, and to all the people who sent us questions. Yes, thank you. There was like 10 of you, and we're super, super grateful. Yes, and to everyone for listening. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.